Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends. So thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to The New Man, Beyond the Macho Jerk and the New Age Wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lanier. Can you really learn how to become world-class at something you failed at just months ago? Does your fear of missing out keep you stuck in painful dilemmas? And what's the key to making anything you do truly satisfying? Four-hour emperor Tim Ferriss is here to tell us about fear, saying no, learning, and how he turned his dismal failures into success. Welcome to The New Man. Today, we're talking with Tim Ferriss. He's the author of The 4-Hour Workweek, The 4-Hour Body, and most recently, The 4-Hour Chef. Tim, thanks for being on the show and talking today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, I got to admit, I, I, I fell into the trap. I judged a book by its cover before I got a copy. And I was like, well, okay, now he's writing a cookbook here. It's just going to be about cooking. Um, but it's way, way, way more than that. I'll, I'll just throw it to you this way. Why should a guy care about this book? I mean, what's in it for him? If cooking's not his thing, it's not on his radar. Yeah, it's a good question, especially to a, a lifelong non-cook. Uh, my second most popular YouTube video of all time is one of me cooking liquid egg whites in plastic containers for breakfast. <laughs> won't, that, won't that make you sterile? I think that yeah, will, yeah. I'm pretty sure that does make you sterile. So I'm glad I stopped doing that once I got got the comments on the video, but. Uh, the so, the so guys who don't care about cooking should care about this book because it's it's a guide to accelerated learning and tackling anything uh, in record time, like learning languages in eight weeks, shooting a three pointer in basketball for the first time in a weekend, uh, you know, learning to swim like an Olympian, whatever it might be, disguised as a cookbook uh, because. Uh, my readers have been asking me for four or five years to write a book on learning on like the four hour mind or something like that. Yeah. And the problem is when you talk about learning in the abstract, like this is how one learns a skill. It's really boring. It's really boring. Uh, and, uh, this is really my third obsession, right? So you have the, the business stuff, the lifestyle stuff, then you have the body related stuff. And now, right. and this is really like my, my third and kind of final <laughs> major obsession. Uh, so the, 
I wanted to, much like Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance, use my journeys in the cooking world uh, and overcoming my fear of cooking and tackling all these different facets of it uh, as a vehicle for exploring all of the most advanced tools for accelerated learning. And uh, that's pretty much it. I would say one more thing, though, specific to men, and this is something I haven't gotten into before. Uh, I realized about a year and a half ago that... uh, I was basically a manual illiterate. Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, I could use my hands for a keyboard. I could uh, do a lot in the digital world, but like, unlike my dad, you know, I couldn't repair basic home electronics. I couldn't fix most things on a car. You know, I couldn't find my way without a GPS or an iPhone or something. Huh. And uh, I, I really felt like I'd lost some of my humanness in that sense. Uh, and so I, I wanted to do woodworking as a way to start to create things, to like build things with my hands. It was just too inconvenient. Uh, I didn't want to have a shitty birdhouse in my in, in my like living room, <laughs> and so I uh, and around that time I, I I started watching my girlfriend cook, who taught herself to cook by watching her grandmother, and I just became fascinated by it. And so cooking be, became my way uh, for reclaiming like my humanness, using my hands to build things. And I think that that is something that sounds maybe kind of out there, but it it is the impact that has had on my life has been just incredible. So it's a combination of those two things. I love that because so much of our lives can be ideas and strategizing. And when I talk to guys, they were all about plans and this is what I'm going to be, you know, I could see, imagine happening. I can get it all in my head. Yeah. Oh, but implementing it. Oh, well, wait a second. That's, that's a whole different thing. And so, yeah. uh, you, you, this embodiment piece is, I, I don't know, to me, that's the rich area. That's where we actually get the sensations and we get to feel it and like, yeah, I'm alive. I'm doing this. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, that's why, you know, the, the subtitle, which sounds like ridiculously expansive, which is, uh, you know, the simple path to cooking like a pro learning anything and living the good life, like the living, the good life is closely related to that, that last piece that we talked about and really reconnecting with ingredients. And even if you never cook anything in the book, what it will do is, uh, it will increase your enjoyment of eating like 10 to a hundred fold, because instead of seeing things like I did in kind of black and white, where it was hot, cold, good, bad, spicy, not spicy. I mean, you're going to be able to pick out all of these million colors as you eat. So I think that for the sole purpose of just enjoying something 10 times more that you do three times a day anyway, um, another good reason to pick this thing up. I, I love it. You know, this, this is a, a conversation I have with guys a lot. I was like, Hey, I want to feel, I want to find my passion. I want to be more passionate in my life. Well, that's a feeling. That's a sensation that we have. And most of us are just shoveling shit into our mouths and eating it, or we're kind of mowing through mindlessly, you know, you know, paying it you know, like email in one hand, TV on over here. And we're not really actually enjoying or, or taking in the experiences that, that are around us. And so what you're saying here is you're, you're going to actually learn how to slow down, have an experience. And that's what's most, that's the good life. That's what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, you know, the, the whole book is a Trojan horse, right? So for, for people who have followed my stuff, they may, they may know that I'm extremely fond of, uh, of, of the Stoic school of philosophy and Seneca in particular, uh, very fascinated with sort of reconnecting with the, the, the physical world now, very interested in that. And, uh, 
endlessly obsessed with learning, right? So it's like, how do you wrap all those things into one? And the way you do that is by ex- exploring cooking. And the book is, is broken into five sections. The first is, uh, well, there's the meta learning section, which kind of goes, and I don't expect anyone to read much like the four hour body. It's kind of a junior, choose your own adventure book. So people will read, you know, hundred and 150 pages and then dip into it as they, as they, uh, explore new things, you know, hopefully for, for a long time. And the book has meta learning first, teaches you all the most advanced stuff that I know. Then domestic, which basically compresses all of the most versatile and powerful techniques and skills of culinary school, two-year culinary school, into four hours of total prep time. So like 15 meals that take less than 15 minutes each to make, uh-huh. uh, which was a huge pain in the ass uh, to, to figure out how to do that because I've just never seen it done anywhere. And then uh, that's cooking twice a week for two months, right? Super, super easy. Um, and then wild, the wild section is becoming not only self, uh, you know, self-sufficient, but self-reliant. And that, that entails like really getting outside and like looking at foraging, looking at, uh, survival, looking at, uh, hunting when, when need be and, and how to go through that entire process. And like, for instance, all like this book perfect would perfectly prepare someone to deal with like the hurricane in New York or Katrina or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the wild section. And then the scientist, which gets into the, all the kind of Willy Wonka crazy shit that, that I, I think is fascinating as well as the biochemical tricks that people liked from the four hour body. So it's like, how do you eat a 15,000 calorie Vermonster, which is from Ben and Jerry's this <laughs> disgusting bucket of ice cream with hot fudge and bananas and cookies and all that crap. How do you eat that in 20 minutes? Then the next day, uh, do a food marathon, which is 26.2 dishes in 26 locations in 24 hours, which is like another 15,000 calories. And then clock in with lower body fat the last day than before doing the first, um, which is kind of fun to, to figure that out. And then the last is the professional, which is just looking at how to borrow creativity and creative methods from the world's best chefs and apply it to everything that you do. Okay. All right. You talked about, you know, reducing or, or condensing the culinary school into a, you know, I can't remember how long you said, but we're going to brace it, basically break it down this whole, this whole concept of accelerated learning. And so we've, we've had guys come on this show and talk about the whole 10,000 hours thing. You become a master by putting in your 10,000 hours. And you're very bold and you say you can become world class in just about anything in six months or less. So how do you cut time without cutting corners? Yep, absolutely. So the, uh, I, th- I think that what's, what's really important when you're talking to anyone or debating anything, like if, so people will get into, into a debate about what it takes to be happy, right. Or what it takes to be successful. And when those words aren't defined very well, people get really, it gets really confusing and people end up arguing in like an endless loop. You know, right. Just like, do you believe in God? Well, like before we even have that conversation, like let's define God. Right. right. Um, and similarly, I think becoming world-class, we need to define world-class really carefully. So for me, it's the top, top 5% in the world. That's it. Like general population out of all the people on the planet, you're top 5% at a given skill, which is, is absolutely, you know, on that basis, I think world-class, um, it's not necessarily becoming Tiger Woods who, when he was like seven years old, was drawing pictures of different irons, hitting golf balls and not pirate ships, which (laughs) you're going to be Tiger Woods, you know, it pretty early on. Mm -hmm. Um, now the the way that you cut time without cutting corners uh is by looking for the anomalies and this is this is where things can get lost so so my specialty is seeking out the outliers and anomalies and then trying to model them 
So for instance, uh, averages and patterns in averages can be really misleading. So if, if, if Bill Gates walks into a bar, the average net worth of each person in there jumps to $500 million. But of course, that's really misleading. So what I would prefer to do is model Bill Gates and not look at the averages. Uh, so there are many different examples. Uh, and so along my adventures, it's like you find somebody who learned Icelandic well enough in seven days to go on a TV show and be interviewed. You know, How did he do that? Okay. Is it some unique skill or can you model it? Uh, you meet someone uh, like Shinji Takeuchi who learned how to swim when he was, I don't know, 30 or 35, but has the second most viewed YouTube clip on swimming uh, because of his incredible technique. So it's like, how did he go from zero to that? And what was his training method? It turns out it was totally like the opposite of, let's say, a Michael Phelps. And I think that by studying the anomalies, and then asking them or asking yourself a few questions about what they've done, you can really quickly try to figure out at least a hypothesis for like, this is what I think their recipe is. This is what I think their blueprint was or is. And then you test it. And uh, as you do so, you'll be able to pick out, you know, through 80-20 analysis, which is, of course, sort of a common thread through the four-hour work week, the four-hour body, you're finding the 20% of activities that produce 80% of the results or identifying, let's say in swimming, you know, the 20% of the movements that, that create 80% of the forward motion, it's not kicking. For instance, people think it's like kicking like a bat out of hell. And that, that's why a lot of people quit swimming. Hmm. The only way that I learned to swim, which was a few years ago, in fact, was by completely rethinking the biomechanics and studying a method called total immersion, where you basically don't kick. It's incredible. Uh, and uh, it, it goes on and on. But I think doing, a, doing the 80-20 analysis, so uh, much like, let's say, Toyota manufacturing, you can find elegance in what seems chaotic. So lean manufacturing with Toyota was, they, was, uh, was really based on other things, removing as many steps as possible. And that wasn't a shortcut. It was, it was an elegant move to remove weight. So I think those are, those are a few of the ways that you can look at it. Okay. You know, one of the things that I get there is too, is that when we look at a Tiger Woods or we look at a Phelps or something like that, it, there's, I think something closes down in a guy's eyes. He's like, I got to be like them. Therefore, I got to do what they do. There's no way I'm going to do what they did. But there's something about this where you scale it back and say, no, 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 no. What's good enough, but still really good. And, yeah. and starting to find ways where you don't have to be that freak out there and, and do what the freak did, the anomaly, as you said. Um, it, I don't know. It just gets rid of the perfectionism, gets rid of this um, this really ultra way out there, you know, trying to compare yourself to a Bill Gates or a Phelps or a, or, or a Tiger Woods or something. And it starts to become more manageable and more doable. I, I just realized like the bar of entry now gets a lot lower. Is that is that kind of what you're saying, too? It, well, it gets, it gets lower in a sense, uh, but I, I still think you can be... I mean, ridiculously, ridiculously good at many things. And that, that's what I try to impart to people is like, okay, I mean, people see these things that I've done, like, you know, the world record in tango and, uh, you know, national kickboxing champ and all, all these different things and 25 languages and so forth. What they don't realize is that I failed at all of those things up until about age 16. And then many of them, uh, you know, like, uh, tango and all like half of, half of my bio, three quarters of my bio 
is all from like three years ago onward or four years ago onward. And uh, I, it's because I figured out through trial and error, better, a better blueprint for approaching these skills. And what's exciting about that is that you, rather than believing uh, a very limiting belief, which is like you become world-class in anything takes a lifetime. So you, you can really only focus on becoming a specialist, really good at one or two things in your life to my standpoint, which is you can do one or two per year if you set your mind to it. And that is really that, that just changes the lens through which you view everything in the world. And the, the last point I would, I would make is that, <clears throat> yeah, I, I don't think it's impossible for people to become as good as a lot of these professionals. Uh, certainly there's some genetic limitations in, in certain cases, but uh, if you look at, let's say some of the best NFL players, uh, you, it's, it's very easy to look at someone and say they are who they are because of how they train, because of how they eat. But in many cases, those people are who they are, despite how they train, despite how they eat. Like you go to the NFL, I kid you not, you see some of these guys who have like 5% body fat running backs and stuff. I know some of these guys and they eat McDonald's for breakfast, Wendy's for lunch, Burger King for dinner. I mean, it's just pure garbage. And so you need to pick the people you emulate really carefully. Uh, but it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's a fascinating journey. It's, it's really fun. And it's obviously one that I'm still continuing. Let's dive into the limiting beliefs because there are, there are guys out there that have the 5% body fat and they could be in the NFL, but there's something going on screwy between their ears. There's something that they don't believe in themselves. And, and I'm wondering, you know, for, for the guy that wants to become the chef or he wants to become the leader in his own life, what's the mindset that they need to adopt? And I don't know if this is going to, you know, you may be swimming in this water. You're like, I don't realize you need a different mindset, but do you, do, or when you're out there and you're talking to people like that guy has a mindset where he can do anything in his life, that guy doesn't, are you able to see the, the two different mindsets there? Uh, sometimes you do. Uh, but like as a, as a personal example, the swimming, I mean, I grew up on long Island on practically on the beach and couldn't swim because I had a couple of near drowning experiences and could never, I took swimming lessons, could never get it. It was always kind of like a dense little wrestler meat cube. So I would just sink. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I just concluded like, I can't swim. Like I can't swim because my, you know, I'm too dense. I can't swim because I was born premature and have lung issues. I can't swim because fill in the blank. And I just carried that with me and I accepted this like partial completeness for like, okay, I just can't swim. That's okay. I'll focus on other things. And like basketball, you know, I was re like ridiculed in junior high at one point when I was trying to learn how to play basketball. And the, the coach at the time was like, you know, you dribble like a caveman. That's really funny. And I was just like, fuck, you know, <laughs> I was like in front of the whole, you know, junior varsity squad. And I was like, well, fuck it. I'm not going to do it then. And I quit. And I was like, you know, I just can't, I can't play basketball. You know, I'm like a caveman. It's okay. I'm good at wrestling. I'm bad at basketball. That's the way it is. Bullshit. You know? And, uh, what, what it took in, in all these cases were a couple of little, you know, cracks in the universe where I saw the potential to learn those things. And one of them was, uh, you know, buddy for the swimming piece, real, a good friend of mine, who's a good swimmer. He said, all right, man, look, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you your new year's resolution. I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> he said, <laughs> you need to swim an open, an open water, one kilometer race, uh, in swimming by the end of the year. And you can give me my new year's resolution in exchange. And we both have to do it. I was like, okay, great. And this is a guy who's doing like six to eight double espressos a day. I said, you can't have anything stronger than green tea for the rest of the year. 
no stimulants, no coffee, no espresso. And he's like, okay, you're on great. And so then I had steaks and I actually, you know, found total immersion through a friend, a separate friend of mine and learned how to swim because I had the steaks. And I was like, huh, well, if this thing I thought was impossible for 30 years is wasn't impossible at all. Like what else out there isn't impossible that I thought was impossible. So basketball also complete happenstance uh, a buddy of, uh, of mine named Nivy, who's a, a really good investor in Silicon Valley sort of accumulates weird skills like me. And, uh, we were having, we were having dinner at a Japanese restaurant and I told him like, yeah, you know, basketball, one of those things, like I, I, I can just never do it. And he said, well, if you want to deconstruct basketball, you need to, you need to look up this guy named Rick Torbett. I was like, ah, yeah. Okay. Like I, I still didn't accept it. I was like, ah, yeah, nah, I'm okay. Like I'll get back to you. And it wasn't until maybe a year later that I decided to look it up as part of this book, you know, the four hour chef where I, I really wanted to take the skills that I most feared that, and the skills I had failed at like cooking, like basketball and try to tackle them and then explain to people how I went about it. And like, boom, now I enjoy going to, I, I never would have imagined in a million years. I'd be like, yeah, let's go to the YMCA and like shoot some hoops. Like you gotta be fucking kidding me. You know? <laughs> and it's, I find it super relaxing now. It's, 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 it's just odd. It's really, really odd. Um, but it, I think that, uh, I do think that you, you take action and then develop confidence, not the other way around. So a lot of people think that I just walk around believing I can do everything and anything. It's, just, it's not true. It's not true. Like I have all, I have insecurities like everyone else. I have a lot of fears like everyone else. Uh, but I'm, I'm very, what I think I'm very good at is bracing myself for potential failure and saying, you know what, you know, fuck it. You're not going to know unless you, unless you give it a shot. And what's the worst thing that can happen? I'm very good at that kind of practical pessimism where I'm like, what, like, honestly, what's the worst thing that can happen? What I go to the YMCA and I shoot some air balls. Like who cares? You know, like I'll go earlier, I'll go late and I'll try to minimize my embarrassment. Like what is the worst that can happen? And I'm good at them just trying stuff. That's it. I'm just good at trying it like for a week. You know, I'm going to try this for a week, like short trials. It's kind of how I run my life. I like that a lot. I like that. I love, especially love that part of like where confidence is a result of experience or confidence is a result of you taking action. A lot of us are thinking, well, when I feel up to it, then I'll go try. Uh, yeah. And that's where we just stay stuck. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Mike Tyson at his prime was still so nervous before his fights that he would often puke in the bathroom. Uh, Mike Tyson, <laughs> you know? yeah, lay your ass out on the mat. Mike Tyson. Yeah, yeah. I mean like Mike Tyson at his prime, most dominant boxer in the last 50 years, uh, was still terrified when he went out. And there's actually a great documentary called Tyson that goes through this, but, uh, yeah, he was terrified. Uh, that's Tyson, you know, and his coach Customato would say, you know, the, the hero and the coward feel the same thing. It's how the hero acts that makes him different. And but I think that's true. Like if you're, if you're fearless, you're nuts, you're insane. Like humans are designed to feel fear. It keeps them alive, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because sometimes I think we think, well, if, I, if I'm feeling fear or if I'm feeling discomfort, a lot of guys aren't even aware that it's fear. They're just like, eh, this just doesn't feel right to me. It's yeah. like that, that something's wrong, that something's off, that I shouldn't be doing this. And what you're saying is like, no, expect fear to show yeah. up. That's normal. Now, what's your response going to be? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think fear often tells you exactly what you, you need to be doing. Uh, and, uh, obviously there's, there's like fear I need to avoid X, but then there's fear like that makes me uncomfortable. Therefore something needs fixing, you know? Yeah. Or, or let me dig a little bit deeper. Like, let me look under the surface. Like, 
you know, why am I afraid of my inbox? You know, <laughs> like, what's, what's going on there? And like the, the, the head in the sand approach is probably not going to fix it. So, you know, what's, what's actually going on. And, you know, when people ask me, which, which happens a lot, like, because I say, look, tackle your first, your most important one or two to do's before you check your email in the morning, like put aside an hour, wake up an hour earlier if you have to and focus on your one or two most important to do's before email. So people will ask like, well, how do I know what my most important to do's are? And I said, nine times out of 10, it's whatever you're avoiding doing. It's the most, <laughs> whatever makes you most uncomfortable on your to-do list is probably the most important thing. <laughs> and, I, and I've found guys that'll do, and I'm, I'm going to just be honest, it's me. Okay. I, I'll do the 20 or 30 things that I, you know, just to be busy and, and feel, try to feel like I'm getting shit done when I'm avoiding the one or two things that if I just did those, I'd actually feel like my day was complete and yeah. I did what I needed to do. So we go to bed feeling exhausted and worn out, but we don't feel any satisfaction. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Let's talk about fear for a second. You, you yeah. talked about fear um, and simplification. One of the things that guys get where they get stymied is this loss aversion, and more importantly, the fear of missing out. So they, they don't fully commit to one thing. They're going to have like three or four options that are rolling out there. So you, you, you had a picture in your book of the, the blade above your door is a simplify. Let's talk about simplification. Saying yes to one thing means saying no to a lot of others. So how do you commit fully to that one thing? With great difficulty. Uh, <laughs> it's, 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 it's really, it's really uh, simple, but very difficult. You know what I mean? As, as many things are. And uh, I have come to realize a few things. And this is an ongoing challenge. It's not like, uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a conquerable challenge. Yeah. I don't want to give people the illusion, which I think a lot of sort of positive pop psychology gives them, which is like, you know, you just decide this once and then you're done. You know, like, okay, I'm going to simplify. Great. And then your life is simple for the rest of your life. It's not how it works. Uh, but <clears throat> a few things. Number one is that saying no to the little manufactured emergencies is necessary if you want to get anything big done. Number one. And you what do you mean by the manufactured emergencies? Given it was uh, I need to hear back from you today on this. Like the people who send you like five follow-up emails, even though there's no rush, you know, all that kind of crap that makes your cortisol levels shoot through the roof right. and you feel like you have to attend to whatever is peeking out at you at the top of your inbox, as opposed to saying, look, I need to block out two, three hours of time to actually get this milestone accomplished in my most important to do, even if the other things fall to pieces, you know, like for instance, you know, like that, that, that DVD, or this is a little outdated perhaps, but like that, you know, that DVD that needs to get back or that Netflix that needs to get back or that, that, uh, even like that, that parking ticket that needs to get paid. And like, you can use all of those things to put off the important things. And it's like, you know what? fine, get, you know, have a, a $10 penalty on that parking ticket, let it go, like block out the two to three hours. And there's actually, there are a couple of, uh, a couple of authors who've written really well on this. Uh, one of them's not an author at all. His name is Paul Graham. He's what he's the, uh, one of the founders of Y Combinator, which is the most successful startup incubator in Silicon Valley. And, uh, he wrote a piece online. You can find it essay called something like the, the maker, the maker versus the manager schedule. Okay. And, uh, along the same lines, Peter Drucker has a fantastic book with a very boring title, uh, called the effective executive. And they both, the, the gist of it is 
no collection of 20 minute chunks of time will ever equal one block of two or three hours mm-hmm. in terms of productivity. So the first thing you have to do in order to, to focus and simplify is to have the time to focus and simplify. Uh, but in terms of choosing your opportunities and picking your shots, you need to develop a set of rules for yourself. So it's like, if you're feeling overwhelmed, for instance, I'll give a personal example. There was a point when the four hour work week came out, uh, you know, it's turned down by 26 publishers comes out surprise hit of the decade, according to men's journal, blah, blah, blah. Right. And I start getting all these speaking inquiries. People want me to do speaking gigs and they're paid speaking gigs. And I was so flattered and amazed that anyone would pay me to speak that I said yes to everything. And, uh, and, uh, I, I paid the price, you know, six months later when they all actually happened. And I was just like a traveling salesman for two months. It was the fucking worst. Like just going from like spot to spot to spot doing the same talk or, or some variation of it. It was horrible. It was like up in the air with Clooney. It was just so depressing. And, uh, even after that point, because the, because these deals were seemingly, know, very lucrative. And I guess they were lucrative, but I was negotiating all these one-offs, you know? So it's like every deal was a different deal. Everybody tried to haggle. Everybody wanted to negotiate. Even if I had my assistant do it, it was really, really time consuming. And then one of my buddies who, uh, who, who also has written books and has done well said to me, you know how I simplified that? And I said, no, he goes, well, there are two ways. The first is, uh, I either, do the free stuff, which is where the audiences are so amazing. The events are so incredible that they don't have to pay anyone. I do either the free stuff or I do full retail, like nothing in between. I don't do any haggling. I don't do, it's either full price, like extremely expensive for me to speak or it's free, nothing in between. I was like, huh, very binary, right? And then he said, secondly, for the full retail, and this is actually what Seth Godin does too. The further away it is from my house, the more expensive it is. <laughs> That's it. So it's like it's down the street and I can like wander over during lunch break and do a little presentation and come back. Great. It's one price. If I have to fly across the country, it's twice that price. If, if I have to go overseas, it's three times that price. And then, then the hard part, which is following your own rules, you know, mm. I've been very good at following my own rules with, uh, with speaking, but I have not been as good at following my own rules with startups, for instance, and startup investing and advising. And I've, I've, I've been very fortunate to have an incredible portfolio of startups that I work with and, and advise and have advised from the very beginning. I mean, a lot of like, uh, whether it's, you know, Twitter, Uber, StumbleUpon, Evernote, um, I, I, you know, I work really closely with some of these companies, but I, I end up saying yes to too much because there are too many interesting things. <laughs> and, uh, so you, you can end up, uh, in this embarrassment of riches situation and I'm not complaining, but right. it's where you're not choosing between like bad opportunity, bad opportunity, good opportunity, which is easy on some level, uh, which is where I was a few years ago. You're now you're like, wow, I have 10 interesting opportunities I could go after or 10 interests I could go after. How do I choose one? And the answer is you, f- you freaking flip a coin, roll the dice, you pick one and you try it. That's the answer. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, you got to deal with that, 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 uh, that doubt like, Oh, did I do the right thing? But you, uh, you just still march through it. You keep going. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. And so the way that, uh, and I think the way you do that is you have confidence in your ability to create opportunity. That's it. So the the way people get in trouble with, let's say, investing 
uh, in startups at least is they feel like they're going to miss the boat on the big opportunity. So like the startup comes through, Oh my God, like I've already hit my quota and I've used X percent of my income for investing, but now there's this new amazing opportunity. I can't miss it. I can't miss it. That's how you make really bad decisions and lose a lot of money. It's it's kind of a panic, right? It's this sense that uh, this is the only time, this is the only thing that I'll ever come up versus I trust other opportunities are going to show up. Right. But that's also how, let's say, entrepreneurs make bad decisions about clients. So they'll have, they're like, okay, I'm I'm deciding I'm going, you know, super high end. I want a handful of low maintenance, high profit customers. And then they have somebody come in who could take a dent out of their, their, their rent check, let's say. And it doesn't fit that profile. It's a high, high headache, high profit customer. And they're like, well, I'll get to my, my new model. But in the meantime, like this will take care of half of my rent. So I'm going to do it Mm. rather than saying, you know, I can push through, I can still pay my rent. It'll be a little bit more painful, but I'm going to stick to my guns and, and trust in my ability to generate better opportunities or as good opportunities later. It seems like when we don't trust ourselves and when we don't trust that we're valuable, we, we tend to put out the message out there that, Hey, you know, I don't really think I'm that valuable. So you shouldn't either. You, you ever notice oh, that? Ab- where- well, absolutely. Well, absolutely. And I mean, the, it's, you know, as in, I think any human relationship, and honestly, I mean, if you look at at, uh, at at apes and monkeys, the same exact thing. I mean, as soon as someone shows any sign of weakness in in the in the form of desperation or uh, anxiety about rushing or anything like that, you will be taken advantage of. It's just that that is how human nature functions. So, if if uh, you know the first rule of negotiation, this when I was taught this a few years ago, I was like, my God, like that makes so much sense. It sounds kind of depressing, but it's true. Like he who cares less wins. Hmm. End of, you know what I mean? Like if you're willing to walk away, you win. And it's like if you if you are so sort of dependent on let's say your partner in a romantic relationship where you have no self worth unless they're constantly giving you validation, you lose. Like you lose. And it's not that you want to be cold to your partner. That's not what I'm saying, but you need to be very self-sufficient and strong on your own two feet. And if you constantly require some type of validation that, that you can only acquire through, uh, constantly, um, compromising with, let's say clients or whomever it might be, then you're going to be taken advantage of. And so I think that it's very important to, sort of know, know your stakes, know what your betting limits are and know what your quitting time is and know what your walkaways are in most situations. And it doesn't take a lot of time to think about it. It takes maybe a minute before you get on the phone to talk to someone. Uh, but really, you know, being willing to say no is, is a, is a major skill. And it, it forces you to, what you're talking about, just having that preparation forces us to actually realize what am I a yes to? What is it that I'm wanting instead of what, what am I fearful of losing? Yeah. Uh, and, and I can imagine, you know, this, this helps me, but just to go into a situation and sometimes it's a, maybe it's a no, I, I, what am I a full yes to? I'm going to play to what I'm a full yes to. If it's, if it's maybe sort of kind of iffy where, I don't know, what do you think yeah. that yeah. no, let yeah. it go and just yeah. trust that the best stuff will come through and that that's the best use of your time, energy and money. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, you brought up a great point. 
and uh, one of my one of my buddies who I, I really admire tremendously. His name is Derek Sivers, and Derek Sivers founded CD Baby, which uh, is basically the largest retailer of independent music, indie music, uh, in the world. It was at one point at least and sold it, sold his company for, uh, I don't know what it was, $29 million or whatever it was. And, uh, very grounded philosophically an incredible programmer, just a, a fascinating, fascinating guy. And like to overcome his shyness, to give you an idea to overcome his shyness at one point, he became, I'm ki- not kidding you, the ringleader, like MC in a circus <laughs> did like a thousand appearances. I'm not, I'm not kidding. It's fucking amazing. And, uh, he would, would he, one of his rules and he is, he is a, a very good kind of operating system for living the good life and being an effective entrepreneur. And one of his rules is like, it has to be, if it's not a hell yes, it's a no. Mm. So it's like when you're evaluating opportunities, if it's not like, fuck yeah, I totally want to do that. It's a no. So if it's like you said, that lukewarm, like, uh, it's not bad. That could be interesting. Like, uh, like ping me again in a month. Right. You're better off just saying no and saving everybody a lot of time and bandwidth and headache, you know? Yeah. And, and that, think- would, that would require that trust. Yeah. And I think it's the lukewarm yeses. Uh, and this is speaking personally too. It's like, there are, there are cases where I have like two or three friends who are like, man, you have to do this. Such a good opportunity. Meet this guy. Let me make the introduction. And then I'm like, ah, I just can't get really excited about it. Right. And I don't want to be rude, but if, if, if to avoid be seeming rude, I say yes to everything, my life will be in shambles. You know, I can't do that. So it's uh, you know, it's a constant, it's a constant course correction. I think I, but, I like that you brought that up that, cause I think there are guys that listen to this show, whether we've had Derek on, whether it's been Derek or you or anyone. And they, they, they get in their mind that there's some kind of exoneration, that there's some point that when you make a certain amount or you have a certain amount of success, that you're exonerated from this prison of suffering. Like, you know, yeah. that you don't have any more difficult choices that come up against. And I like that you're speaking about this, that they keep coming. You, <laughs> you have a whole new set of problems that, you know, it's like a video game you you clear the board and then the monsters get faster and you know you know it's like <laughs> yeah, it exactly. just keeps going right exactly yeah once you clear level man it doesn't get easier <laughs> you just have a new set of problems and that's not that, that that doesn't need to be depressing and i think that you know without challenges you'll, you'll you would actually be much more depressed than if you didn't have those challenges and if, if you look at any of the ultra ultra rich people out there uh, particularly well I would say primarily those who were born into extreme affluence, they are fucking miserable. They're so miserable. Uh, and it's not always the case, but it's very, very, very frequently the case. And it's because they have, they don't have any giants to slay. You know, they don't have any mountains to summit. They're just like, ah, oh, I'm unemployed, but I'm going to call myself a painter and I don't know what to do with myself. So I'm going to go to my shrink and get my antidepressants. And it's a bad existence. So, uh, yeah. You clear level, you have bigger, different problems. And it's like, so it should be, you know, it's like if you, if you have the wherewithal to, uh, to conquer one level, like, guess what? You've earned, you've earned the right to have different problems. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And, 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 you know, if you're, if you're steering this ship and you're saying, look, what kind of problems do I want to have? Or what kind of challenges do I want to have? Then it gets, then it's fun. I mean, you sat down in front of the video game, you chose to turn it on and play. Why not bring that same mentality to your life? Um, but there's a lot of people that are playing. They're like, I just want to be done. I don't want to have to deal with this shit anymore. And that's yeah. where it's, that's the suffering. Yeah, that's, that's a dangerous game. And I mean, I think that a good objective to have 
certainly is the ability to say no and opt out whenever you want. Mm. I think that is a, an absolutely worthwhile goal, but you're not going to opt out forever. Uh, most people won't because they'll be too bored. Uh, but in my case, like, look, I'm going to take all of February off. I'm going to go off the grid. Right. And I have the ability to do that. And I think that is something that you can, you can earn and create, um, you know, mostly from all the stuff in the four hour work week. But part of the way, part of the way that I personally can tolerate and feed off of the, the problems and, and the suffering that comes with striving to do anything incredible, it doesn't have to be a lot of suffering, but it's there. <clears throat> is having, having a, a goal to impact other people. Like just, if it's only for you, it's not going to be enough. Like it's just not, it, for, at some point you will run out of, of hit points. <laughs> and, but if you're like, look, I'm doing this for the betterment of X and it's something outside of yourself. Could be your kids, could be the broader world, could be for your listeners, could be for your readers, could be for your community, could be for your church, could be for anything. But having that, I think, really gives meaning to an otherwise pretty shallow driven experience. Oh, I like that, you know, because, you know, a lot of the things that you're talking about in your past that you've done, whether it was, you know, ballroom dance or tango or writing or kickboxing, they were very solitary. It was you and you got the award and that was it. Did you learn that through, wait a second, what's really most rewarding? Did that come through writing? How did you learn that lesson? Well, you know, I, I always wanted to teach and I, I simply found that instead of being in a classroom and I still teach, I go back to Princeton twice a year and I teach uh, a guest lecture in high tech entrepreneurship, which is, which is a blast. I and mean, it's really, really fun. Uh, but I just found again, in this accidental career that I've chanced upon in a way that books in the blog are the highest leverage form of teaching that I can, that I can do. Mm. And it's just been so rewarding. I mean, so I'm really excited to see what this book does, but you know, to meet people who have lost 150 pounds, 170 pounds in this low carb diet from the four hour body, right. In many cases with no exercise, just like pure diet, boom, 170 pounds. And to meet people who are like, my mom is off of insulin now and we, we, we expect her to have like an additional 10 to 20 years in her life. So she'll get to actually see her grandkids or That's awesome. whatever it is. You know, I was trapped in this job with miscellaneous, like monolithic corporate, uh, behemoth. And like, now I run my own business and I can take two months off a year with my kids and travel and so forth and so on. Like, so for this book, it's like, I want people to come up to me after reading the four hour chef and be like, you know what? I was always afraid of, of swimming, or I, I never thought I could ever learn a language or I never thought I could do X, like fill in the blank. I'd never cooked in my life. And I just made like Asabuco for a family uh, or for like a, a group dinner of four. And it took me five minutes of prep time. And everyone thought it was, you know, I should open my own restaurant or whatever it is. Yeah, I want people to come up to me when they see me and say that kind of thing. Uh, and that's where I get, that's the fuel for the fire that keeps me doing this stuff. Cause books are for me, books are really, really, really hard. Like <laughs> writing is very difficult for me and it's that kind of feedback that keeps me going. But if, if, if I were just doing all of these experiments for myself and not putting them down and sharing them with people, I wouldn't, I would not have, I would not be able to get through it. I just wouldn't be able to. It wouldn't have the juice. It wouldn't have the juice. Yeah. What's, what are the daily fundamental practices that you do um, to get you into this mindset? You know, what are the things that you can't leave behind? Even if you go off the grid, what are some of the things that you do on a daily basis? This is, I got to do this. 
Uh, it depends very much on the time. Uh, so I'm, I'm very project oriented. I don't have necessarily, we're talking about work specific things. Well, I'm, I think more of just your own prep, like the prep you for the day, you know, some guys are all about, I got to get my movement in. I got to do my meditation. I got to eat my shake. That's got an antler horn in it, whatever, you know, it's like, what's your thing? Yeah. So I, I I go on and off with, with certain things like the meditation I'm, I'm fairly inconsistent with, but I'll do it on and off. Uh, the, the most consistent routine that I have, uh, is wake up, 30 grams of protein within 30 minutes of waking up. So pretty much immediately I'll have a protein shake or a fast breakfast. If I have a whole food breakfast, it's going to be two to three eggs with some, some nice spices in them, spinach, and then, uh, lentils. Typically that's like the magical breakfast for a host of reasons. If I do a whole food breakfast, Uh, otherwise I'll have a shake and then I'll put, put a kettle on for hot water and I'll, I'll have puer tea. That's my, my most current tea favorite for mornings is puer tea, which has some interesting fat loss applications, but it also lights you up like a Christmas tree, which is helpful. (laughs) Uh, And then I'll, I'll really try to focus on the most important one or two to do's. Those could be personal. Those could be business related before jumping into email right away. So that I don't feel like I'm, I'm stepping right into high speed traffic. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? which is what happens if you jump right into reactive mode with email. Uh, and, uh, you know, right now this is book launch. So it's a very unique period of time for me. This is, this is like my final sprint in the, the gold medal race for the Olympics, right? right? Very unusual time for me, but I try to look at different opportunities. Then if my objective, let's just say is to move a hundred thousand copies of the book in week one. And uh, since the book is Amazon publishing's, uh, first major acquisition is being boycotted by, you know, 600 plus stores of Barnes and Noble and so forth. I have a challenge ahead of me. So it's like, how do I make up for that deficit online and elsewhere? Well, I need to look at different partnerships and whatnot and sort of look at them in descending order of potential max volume of books moved, and then look at the next actions and milestones for each of those relationships, whether pre-existing or, or relationships I need to develop and then work down the list. Uh, folks, on the, the, you know, the highest leverage, highest impact options first. <clears throat> and then later on in the day, uh, self-care super important. So I, 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 because of the amount of time I'm spending seated these days, uh, I'll, I will either go to the gym and do some type of posterior chain work. What that means is just like deadlifts, kettlebell swings, base of the skull to Achilles tendons type of posterior work. Uh-huh. Uh, to correct a lot of the imbalances. Since I'm sitting down with a keyboard, I'll work on uh, pec mobility. So uh, really opening up the pec tissue so it doesn't get constrained and and affect my posture. Uh, and then perhaps once or twice a week, I'll get actual massage work done because it's it's really therapeutic. And it's at this point for me, because of the amount that I'm trying to get done right now, I mean, it's, it's really like swapping out the tires on a Formula One race car. Like you, if you don't do that, you're going to crash and burn right. in a major, major way. And uh, they might only be 30 minutes long. Like they're, they're not three hour massages, you know, and that, that's something that for anyone who makes you know, even 40 grand a year, like you can afford to get a 30 minute massage once a week. Like it's, it's, it's not out of the question. I love that, that, that aspect of recovery and all this, because it's easy to just look at all the output. I got to output, output, output. But you're talking about this self-recovery. A lot of guys have a hard time giving themselves permission to do that, and they see it as somehow working against it. I like that you're making this case like, no, without this, I don't get to be effective. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's no question. I mean, without the, without the repair 
like, you know, business and life are, are full contact sports. So it's like you go out there and you take a bunch of you know, uh, you know, blade swipes, you take a bunch of fastballs to the chest, like you need to have a timeout to recover before you can go out and do that again. You can't, you can't, you can't simply, uh, you know, have your nose to the grindstone for the entire period of time. Like you, you will not survive, <laughs> let alone thrive. Uh, and it'll certainly negatively affect not only you, but your relationship. So it's, it's the, the recovery is, is a must have for optimal performance. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned, you mentioned what's going on with the book and how it's being boycotted. Barnes and Noble, you've got a, a very special offer for the for the people listening right now. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the book is is uh, the Four Hour Chef is by far the most beautiful book I've ever put together. I mean, it's it is it has fifteen hundred plus photos, had hundreds of illustrations. Worked with teams around the world to put this thing together right, and uh, it, it's <laughs> it's kind of like choose your own adventure book meets comic book meets uh, coffee table book. It's it's a lot of fun. So this is a holiday. It's a great holiday uh, book. And so what I'm offering is a, an exclusive Q and a with me where you can ask me whatever you want, which we'll do after the launch week. And to get an invite to that, uh, you know, the, the proper link and whatnot, all you have to do if you're interested is buy three copies of the print book on Amazon and then send the receipt for those three books to, uh, the following email address, three books, the number three books at, four hour chef, the number four, and then H O U R C H E F.com. And uh, you'll get an invite. So that's that simple. So if you buy three books, you know, three print books, one for you, two as gifts and, uh, send the Amazon email receipt to three books at four you'll get an invite. And then I'll pop a bottle of wine and we'll hang out for an hour or two. And you can ask me whatever you want. That's awesome, man. We've never had that offer on here. So very, very cool. Hey, Tim Ferriss, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Great stuff. We went way over. I appreciate your, your generosity. There was so much good stuff in here. Um, I think this will be one of those interviews that guys go back to over and over again and, and pull out some great nuggets. This was, uh, this was really fun. So thanks for having me. And I, I hope people, I hope people enjoyed it. Great job. You're a very good interviewer. There's so much more to The New Man than these interviews. So visit thenewmanpodcast.com and join the mailing list so you never miss another update. Thanks for listening.